a lot of us have a difficult time letting go of doing stuff that we've been doing for a long time. I've certainly always been very critical and judgmental of the coaching space. And maybe there's a subconscious element of that too, like the savior element, as opposed to just kind of every great team has a coach. There's a thrill in being able to get a bunch of different people moving in the same direction towards the same goal. I had every person that I know tell me I was stupid, which is good, right? If you're an entrepreneur, I feel like you kind of want people telling you that at some point in your career. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Please excuse this conference voice. It's been an incredible week at DCBKK. Obviously, I've been talking a hell of a lot with hundreds of extremely fascinating founders. I can't wait to bring you those stories and just an overview of the event in the coming weeks on this podcast. Now, today's guest emailed me a few weeks ago, specifically about the segment where we talked about aging out of sports and his take was there something critical that draws us to those sports? And it has something to do with the way many of us run our businesses. We talked about a lot of things in this episode, camaraderie, seeking community, and maybe those of us who run remote businesses, just maybe we're depriving ourselves of some of the most important things in life, like being around other people. And that's what this week was about. And I got to say, being around the team was pretty incredible. Does that make me want to co-locate in the same city? I don't know. Jury's out on that one for me, but it sure was great being around the team and having that sense of camaraderie. Today's guest is Anthony Fasano. He is the founder of the Engineering Management Institute, which he started to help engineers become better managers and leaders. He has a 15-person team. This is a seven-figure business, and he's got incredible margins. Anthony is the author of Engineer Your Own Success. He's also got a podcast and YouTube network with over 3 million downloads. I think for those of us who are content creators and coaches, this is a really interesting case study. So let's roll the episode. So we started out with a podcast called the Engineering Career Coach Podcast, which was focused on helping engineers become great leaders, grow their careers. And we've created now a platform of 10 podcasts and three YouTube channels, all for different engineering networks. Like the Civil Engineering Podcast is actually our number one podcast right now, which focuses on topics for civil engineers, but we've kind of built a network. That's crazy. Can you let us know what your company looks like? So today we have about 15 people between freelancers and full-timers that work on the business. We service mostly large engineering consulting firms in the U.S. that do infrastructure-related work. We're growing very rapidly. This will be our first year where we're going to hit the seven-figure mark, but it already looks like next year we'll be doubling in size. And you guys are really profitable as well. Super profitable, yeah, like 30%, maybe more. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. How did you do it? Because you've been running this business for a long time. When you say things like, we're helping these big engineering firms do this and that, I mean, that sounds intimidating for someone that wants to start a podcast. How did you get into all that? So it really was just my background. 
I'm a civil engineer by background. I worked in a consulting firm and I wanted to get to the top of the firm. And I noticed that the people that got to the top of the firm, it wasn't the engineering skills that helped them. It was the non-technical skills, right? They could communicate, they could do project management, they could bring a new business. And so I saw like a real problem. The problem was engineers need those skills to succeed, but no one gives them those skills to succeed. And so I started doing some training within my own firm on those skill sets. And we saw some great results and I really liked it. And I kind of put two and two together and said, if there's one firm like mine that has hundred plus people that suck at these skill sets, but they need <laughs> them to succeed, like there's got to be thousands of them out there kind of across the industry. So one of the things I started doing was I went on LinkedIn every day for an hour at lunchtime and I just started connecting with engineers and different firms. And today I have 15,000 LinkedIn connections and they're all like engineers and engineering firm leaders. And that's been like a huge growth factor for us. But that was really the emphasis of it. And ultimately I made a couple of deals with some people that I knew to get some coaching contracts and that got me out the door and kind of away we went, which was back in like 2012. There's one thing that is confusing to me because I understand the engineers, they want to get ahead in their career. And so they look at a program that would help them make more money, essentially, and be like, yeah, I want to learn those skills. But why do the employers care? Because now you have employers as clients as well, right? So why as an employer would you want a bunch of charismatic engineers working for you? Don't you want them just stuck in the AutoCAD cranking out projects? <laughs> so when I left the company, at that time, I would say soft skills for engineers wasn't as popular as it is now, meaning like companies didn't recognize the value of those skill sets because engineering projects are complex, right? Yes, you got to be on AutoCAD, you got to be cranking out plans and specs, but don't forget you need to communicate those plans and specs to other consultants, citizens, boards, agencies, your clients. So the ability to communicate in magic projects is critical. And what I think started happening, technology and bigger infrastructure projects in the U.S. pumping a trillion dollars into the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, these companies were like, holy crap, if our engineers can't communicate and be leaders, we're screwed, basically. And so when I started the business, I started as the engineering career coach because I had gone to coaching school and I thought I could really help engineers. And... At one point in time, and we use Taylor Pearson, who I know everyone who listens to the show is a big fan of. He's great. He's our, our yeah. business coach. I worked with Taylor for a long time. And at one point, we were both kind of like, if you want to go more into corporate and go from B2C to B2B, the engineering career coach probably isn't the best brand, right? Because number one, companies don't need a career coach. And I think a lot of people have a negative connotation for coaching. Like, I need coaching when I'm in trouble type of thing, Right. I haven't heard that in a while, but it's I've true. certainly always been very critical and judgmental of the coaching space. And maybe there's a subconscious element of that too, like the savior element, as opposed to right. just kind of every great team has a coach. Yeah. And that's the way I try to explain it to people. You know, I think Michael Jordan said it many times that if he didn't have Phil Jackson, he wasn't winning all those championships, right? It wasn't going to be able to do it on his own, so to speak. So we ended up changing the name of the company to Engineering Management Institute. And the theory behind it is we really focus around engineering management and leadership. And if we wanted to position ourselves as a company that these leading firms would want to work with, it was a much better branding and much better approach. So the second we did that, things really took off. But the other thing I'll say is that when I left my full-time job in 2012, 
I had just kind of become an associate at the company and my wife was pregnant. I had every person that I know tell me I was stupid, which is good, right? If you're an entrepreneur, I feel like you kind of want people telling you that at some point in your career. And so I did it and I took a shot and I started full time and I had a couple of contracts that I got on the books before I quit my job, which got me going for the first year or two. One of the things that perks up my ears when I bump into guys like you, Anthony, is like a lot of entrepreneurs, let's just face it, I'll speak for myself here. We're dirtbags. No one's going to hire us. We don't have a paycheck waiting for us somewhere. But whenever I see like a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, an accountant that decided to step off and grow a company, I think, why not just take the paycheck? You know, what was your thinking at that time? And why take the risk to start a business versus the money you could have made by just putting in solid, limited hours at your desk? I've always felt that if you know how much money you can make in one year, you're not doing a good job of, you know, leveraging your skill sets, right? Like if I know my salary is $80,000 a year, then to me, that's boring, right? Because I know what I'm getting. If I feel like I'm someone who can do sales, I know how to solve problems, I can communicate effectively, I could do a lot better than that. And I don't want anyone to put a cap on what I'm able to earn each year. I always tell my kids when they ask me, what do I do for a living? And I, I say, I'm an entrepreneur. And they say, what is that? I say, I just create money whenever I need it, right? Like that's the way I think about it. If I need something, we're buying a building right now for our company. We're buying a headquarters. We don't have the money to buy headquarters. <laughs> it's on my wife. I'm like, I'm going to put an offer. She's like, well, what if they accept it? I was like, well, we'll just have to figure out how to get the money. And I worked it out with a client to prepay a training program to get the down payment for the building. So to me, that's an entrepreneurial game is if you know how much you're going to make, that's boring. And you need to be more creative with all the resources available to really leverage your skill sets and then grow in bigger ways than that. Sometimes I see there's a pattern of people developing a facsimile of what they do in their career and kind of selling it back freelance. And that is the first leap into entrepreneurship, which is mine, for example. I took a fraction of what I did at my job, packaged it as an SEO service and sold it to a client for $50,000 a year. That $50,000 was almost like my, it was my seed funding to start my company essentially because it covered my living expenses at the time. Was that a similar situation that you were in? You're talking about your wife's pregnant, yeah. you quit your job, and then you sell a couple packages back to clients. Can you walk me through how you cut the two deals that cash flowed your ability to jump off in the first place? So I had remembered that a woman contacted me on LinkedIn. She was, they were a smaller engineering firm, but they were like rapidly growing and acquiring companies. And I called her and said, hey, I think I know how I can help you with your growth plans and integrating acquisitions with some of my coaching skills. And so she got me a job with the CEO and I got a six-figure coaching contract over like a year to help them with some of their project managers and integrating these companies. How do you price that? I mean, in the beginning, I think it was all like back of the napkin calculations, honestly. It's like consulting, coaching type of work, you know? Yeah. It was just at that time, what do I think my time is worth on an hourly basis and how many hours is it going to take type of thing? Yeah. You know, for the most part. But then... When I gave my resignation with the company that I worked at, who I still have a good relationship with, I was able to retain them as a client to continue to do some of the work that I was doing there, some of the coaching and training. So I had those two clients kind of right off the bat. One of the challenges of that sort of situation is, okay, great. Now you've got your freedom. You can hang out at home. You can go to lunch and make it two hours. But how do you build an asset when you've just sold so much of your time to a client and you've got to deliver. I sometimes run into agency owners who three, four, or five years in, it's such good money that they're selling their time that there's not a there there. 
like there's not an asset at the core of it except them going out and kind of get selling more of their time for better multiples. But you managed to build an asset. And I think, how did you juggle that as you went along? I've been thinking about this a lot. It's three things. Identify a problem, figure out how to solve the problem, and then figure out how to solve the problem at scale. So what you're talking about is the difference between like step two and three, right? Like if you figure out the problem, which a lot of entrepreneurs will say, hey, you just got to find the problem, then figure out how to solve it. Then you're in the position that you talked about where you're in the hamster wheel solving the problem yourself. So you can only solve so many people's problems. And again, you're limiting your wealth and your revenue. So what I really focused on from day one was building a good team, listening to a lot of things you guys talk about on the podcast, good SOPs, building a team, having a good process, good habits every day. And I feel like we've done that. We've got good teams here, different divisions. We work well. And now we've been training instructors and I'm stepping out of some of the, the meetings and I'm doing less of the instruction. And we have 10 podcasts now. I certainly don't host 10 podcasts, of course. Yeah. How important has that element been to it where you guys have basically the marketing that builds brand that ostensibly builds pricing power? Pricing power is a way to have scale, right? If you can only yeah. charge for your time, there's no margin there to build a business. But now if you're the EMI team, there's a pricing power where you can have margin and you can build a team with the margin. It's huge, right? I mean, I think everything in business is about leverage. And when you start your business, you're clamoring to get a couple of clients. And if you get to the right position, you're saying, I don't really want this client. I want something bigger. I want something better. And I really think it goes back to mindset. I think a lot of us have a difficult time letting go of doing stuff that we've been doing for a long time. I see in engineers, when they get to become a manager, they don't want to be a manager. They want to be an engineer. So it becomes a problem. I like hosting podcasts. So we have 10 podcasts. I can't host all the podcasts. So I got to back out of some of that. I love doing the instruction, but I just can't do all the instruction anymore if we want to get to where we want to go. So I think there's a lot of discipline involved, Dan. I think you really need to have a goal for your company, a goal for what you want to accomplish and be really rigorous and sticking to it. And when the third step that I said is be able to solve the problem at scale means you just have to build a team. Like there's no way around it. You mentioned now you're at a point where the business has become a bit overwhelming in terms of the opportunity. What has changed? Is it simply that y'all have been around for a long time? Or was there specific things that you guys did to open up the sort of opportunity scope? One of the biggest things that's driving the growth of our business now that I think nobody thinks about at all is when I started the first podcast in 2013, sitting in a hotel in Alaska doing a speaking engagement, I hit the publish button. And so many people, by the way, told me that there's no engineer that's going to listen to a podcast about their career. So don't waste your time with it, by the way. <laughs> the podcast got cited by Forbes like a couple of years later. But the point is that think about 10 years ago, you're an engineer, you're maybe, I don't know, 27, 30 years old, you're young in your career, you're hungry, you find this podcast, you're listening to it, Anthony Fasano's helping me grow my career, this is awesome. Where are all those people today? They're doing good. Yeah, and where are they <laughs> in companies though? Where are they sitting? They're the leadership. Right, so when they need training in their company, who are they calling? <laughs> Anthony Fasano. Yeah, right. So what happens is like, we have not taken one ad out ever, by the way. No ads, no social media, no whatever. I don't know anything about that stuff, but that's a huge opportunity for us, obviously. But my point being is that we get calls every day from people say, hey, Anthony, I listened to the podcast for five years and we need to put a new training program in place here. So we're just getting these calls every day. And it's just, it's like hockey stick growth at this point. 
Because if enough people are listening and hearing about EMI, plus now we have a lot of big clients already that keep wanting more work, it just becomes like a, that flywheel, right? That momentum that just keeps driving you now. I think that having the push-pull content, giving so much good information to people for so many years has really come back now to help the business. Do you guys see yourselves as a media brand with services tacked on the back? I always view us as a learning and development company. I feel like our training programs are the best out there. We can do them at scale. We're really good at it. I just always felt like the content side of our business is information for engineers that I didn't have when I was a young engineer. And I want to make sure that that doesn't happen to any engineers now. That being said, we're starting to get some really big sponsors with products for engineers, but that was never my intention. And I still kind of think of the business as a learning and development organization with some great content. I tell people that we help engineers become better leaders through our content and our learning and development programs. What do you think are the qualities of that audience in terms of size or quality that allows people to build a meaningful business off of it? It's a good question. Our podcasts are a little bit all over the map. We have some podcasts like our civil engineering podcast, believe it or not, that does about 20,000 downloads a month for a civil engineering podcast. Our engineering career coach has had many, many downloads over millions. So I don't know the audience size. I could tell you our email list is 27,000 engineers. So it's hard to answer. I don't think it's the size of the audience, honestly. And I think I've heard you guys talk about this before. It's the quality and the niche of the podcast that is really important. I would say civil engineering firms constitute about 75 to 80% of our learning and development clients. And the U.S. just came out with this investment infrastructure investment jobs act, which will release like a trillion dollars to institutions across the 50 states for infrastructure work, which means our clients need more engineers. They need to train them. So I think it's also a little bit timing in the industry. Yeah. It's like all those things that have come together. But I do think that the podcasts putting out the content is just, it's really a positive relationship with that community, showing them that you're willing to help them and anything that they need, they should be able to find it on our website and they don't need to buy something from us. They can just listen to a podcast. Yeah. I do think it's interesting that when people talk about numbers and signals, I think it's so easy to forget that they're very vague approximations of what's actually happening. Like 20,000 engineers that are 40 years old listening to your podcast is extremely different than 20,000 people who are thinking about majoring in engineering. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but it's still 20,000 downloads. And so one of the things I think that's interesting about what you've done is you were able, I call it the coffee table test, where it's easy when you're doing, quote, marketing to forget that there's a real person on the other side of what's happening. And I always encourage my staff to imagine if you sat down with the client you're writing an email to and they were at the coffee table with you and you actually had to explain, you wouldn't like market to them. You know what I mean? Like, right. You would try and communicate effectively what's going on. And trying to do that at scale, I think, is what a lot of successful, these new media brands are doing. And I think if I were to analyze your situation, you were already having these conversations. And so you knew the form and the structure that they took on and then you just did it at scale. Is that a fair yeah. appraisal? I think that's fair. I think if you're thinking about something that's good for your business, podcast is good in a million different ways. You get exposure to people. You can help people in the community. You build in a relationship. You're understanding the industry. You're starting to understand what they're going through. There's like a nonstop number of reasons that people should do some kind of content, podcast, videos, but any way you can interact with people in your industry is invaluable for you. Yeah. 
Hey, if you like the show, just want to remind you, we have a website, tropicalmba.com. You click through on your phone, check us out on the web, hit that subscribe button. I write the newsletter every week. There's a lot going on behind the scenes of the pod. That's the best way to find out about upcoming events, both virtual, in-person, and much more. Check us out at tropicalmba.com and give us some feedback on this brand spanking new website. Because it's time for a spanking. There's a concept we've talked about on the show a few times, Anthony, the 10-year career. And I'm wondering if you could give some contour to this idea where you could have stayed an engineer, made a good living, lived in a similar area, but you branched off to your, you took your responsibility on yourself. And a lot of people in our community, I think sometimes they look back and they say, well, financially, I'd basically be in the same position if I stayed in a job, but I just made it more stressful. I'm curious, could you judge the entrepreneurship path versus the good career path? And what have been the differences that you've noticed? And why are you going to stick to the entrepreneurship route? Yeah, I mean, I think about it a lot because I do think that you create stress for yourself as an entrepreneur, for sure, that you probably wouldn't have in a corporate career. Although I work with a lot of engineers in the corporate world. I don't know that that's true anymore, Dan. I think there's a lot of pressure on people in the corporate world. I think they're working 24-7 like us. You got cell phones, Teams, Slack. So number one, I think that's a little bit of a misnomer, unless you have a real job where you're like literally nine to five, but I don't think those really exist that much anymore. So that's one thing I would kind of say to people that are considering the difference between the two. The other thing I would say is for me personally, I think it's just not as exciting enough. And I like the idea of growing something from scratch. I may be working a little bit more, be a little bit more stressed, but I think there's a lot more on the excitement side of the spectrum. And I've got to meet so many people, travel to places that I think that's kind of what tips the scale for me to go the unorthodox route, if you will. Do you think it's good enough that it's worth taking a discount for? Like if you knew in advance that you would ultimately make, say, 20% less a year being a founder, would you choose that option? Say for the same period of time. For me, I would say 100% yes. Yeah. It's a personality (laughs) thing too, right? Like I have no one listening to this podcast right now is like, this is a real decision. Right. That's true. We're preaching the choir a bit. Yeah. No, but I, but I do, I would say that people listening to this podcast have probably thought about it once in a while when they're like up at night at 11 o'clock trying to finish something up. Like I do that lately. It's been a little bit crazy, like just so tired because we're just so busy and you have to work at night sometimes and I'm getting up early. I mean, I have three kids. So I do think that there are sacrifices to make, but I do think that if you are disciplined, like I said earlier, a lot of the stuff you guys cover on this show is important. Like you got to be disciplined. You got to have your scorecards. You got to do all that stuff. But if you can do it, I think the upside is greater. And not just financially, I think in other ways. Yeah, 100%. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today, Anthony, is this idea of community and camaraderie. You had some really interesting thoughts about it. Recently, I spoke about injuries. You know, I'm old. Everybody around me is getting injured by playing the team sports they used to love. I can feel my wrist right now. I'm uh, <laughs> still struggling to recover. And for me, it was just like, haha, people over 30 getting injured, BJJ, basketball, baseball, whatever. We should really move on to be triathlon. But you weighed in with some thoughts about that maybe there's like something more to this. Maybe there's something more to the concept of simply not wanting to be triathletes. Uh, I'm wondering if you could just share some of your initial thoughts and we'll go from there. I've always been involved in sports my entire life. From a kid in high school, played three sports, football, track, baseball. And 
even I played on a wood baseball team a year ago here in town and I'm in my forties. So when I think about it is it's the camaraderie and the team together chasing towards a goal and like going through the ups and downs of a season together is very powerful emotionally. You get the highs, you get the lows, but you're doing it together with a team. You're sitting next to them. You win a game. Everybody runs out in the field together. I think like that feeling and that adrenaline is very difficult to replace with something else. For me, I was sitting at home for many years as an entrepreneur. Really, I had a team, but they were all remote and it's not the same experience. And so being involved in sports still allows you to have that in-person, hey, we're doing this together. We're going for this goal. You're on my team. And I'm supporting you regardless of what happens. I think there's like a lot of positivity to that. I actually have been reading a lot about this. I'll probably mess up the name of the book. I think it might be called The Good Life or the people in Harvard that did like the study. They studied for like a hundred years or something where they've been studying. We can link it up in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, have Um, a bunch of friends, don't drink too much. Those are the big takeaways. Yeah. Like (laughs) it's really relationships, right? Every person they ask that's like in their eighties and nineties, you're like, what do you remember most about your life? They're like relationships. And the people that were happy, you just had like more relationships and more like social interaction, right? Yeah. And so I think that these athletic outlets are a lot of social interaction, a lot of camaraderie, a lot of team building. And I think that we need to do more things like that for people to be happier, especially after COVID where everybody was really isolated. And I think it's very much sports and I think sports and business are almost identical if you look at it in many ways. One of the dominoes that fell for me when you mentioned this, there's like this kind of progression where a lot of people, let's just use America as an example. I think a majority of Americans went to church, say 40, 30 years ago. Like when I was younger, we did. And then I didn't go. And then I would hang out with my coworkers when I became. And so like church became like this office thing. Right. And then I was like, well, I don't want to go to the office just like I don't want to go to church anymore. So you start shedding these things. And then I start to notice that the founders were not hanging out in the office. We don't have the office stuff. And then there's a subset of us that do these like sort of extreme tribal things. Then we replace it with, I'm going to go to Machu Picchu or I'm going to do the DC Hodge, or I'm going to hang out with 20 middle-aged men who are trying to race the Tour de France the day after. There's this hyper-hobbyist segment where you have this spare time and this flexibility now. I'm wondering if these things are all connected. That's the question. Are they connected? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. To me, there's nothing like winning with a team. There's one way to say it. And I think there's a thrill in being able to get a bunch of different people moving in the same direction towards the same goal. And I think it applies in business. I think it applies in sports. I think it applies in different walks of life. You could even look at it from a family perspective if you want to. Yeah. And I think that's what's always been a driver for me. I mean, I coached, I actually coached high school football during the pandemic, which was like a random thing to do. And it was a a really amazing experience. And what I learned from it was that it wasn't the football. It was like helping the kids and like mentoring them in life. These kids are just having conversations with you every day. Yeah. So I know high school football takes a beating a little bit with the head injuries and I get that, but like the discipline that it takes for a sport like that to show up every day and be with the teammates and do stuff. I think it's really good for people overall. And so, I mean, I'm so much interested in this. We are trying to purchase a building. Tell me about this is where we're, this is how we're ending the interview. Yeah. So you take this so seriously with this whole, I'm talking theory, meta trends. You're like, yo, I'm coaching and I'm buying a building. Why? I just feel that when you're together with people 
and you're building those relationships and you're doing things in person, you can really accomplish a lot together. And yeah, you could accomplish a lot virtual. I don't doubt that. But there's also that relationship building, satisfaction, happiness that comes into play. And, and I'll tell you the, the reason for this, Dan, is because I have a remote team at EMI. That's what our team is, right? I think we have about 15 people now, roughly. We've never met each other ever until this past year. We went to a conference in Boston and we brought like a lot of the team members. First time we met people from Africa, people from, you know, across the U.S. And it was awesome. We hung out all week. We went out for every meal. We, it was like amazing. And I'm like, dude, we need to do, we need more of this. This can't be a once a year <laughs> conference type of deal. So I was like, you know what? I need to get a headquarters. Maybe it doesn't have to be anything big in the beginning. See if we can either we'll hire, we're going to need to hire more people. We can hire them locally. Maybe some of our employees would want to relocate here and start to build something here together where hey, you don't have to come in every day if you don't want to, but we'd love for people to get together, have a barbecue in the back, make it something that's really like a family atmosphere, which is what we really are. But so you could actually see people and, you know, build those relationships. So we're in the process of it now. We're, we're hopefully going to be closing on the building in a couple of months. And I'm excited about the opportunity. Now that's the tricky part is like, how can you get a group of 15 people that they're all getting the return on the enormous investment to be together with each other? And that seems to be the trick with these um, more centralized businesses. Because maybe like, for example, the team members in Africa have a family that isn't going to move to the US. So right. then how do they make that decision? Right. Yeah. And I don't think it'll be everybody coming to one location, but I just think having a couple of our key leaders together in the building, having a podcast studio that we can go to and run content each day. And another thing that I didn't really mention that I think is important about building a business is you need to have core values for the business. And most people, they're like not memorable. Most of the companies we work with, I don't think any of their employees know what their values are. So a couple of years ago, I went through an exercise and I asked everybody at the company why they like working at EMI. And basically people spit out like a bunch of adjectives, right? Like enjoyment, I love the people. And so what I did was I looked at it and I was like, what are the actions that create these feelings that they're giving me basically? And I came up with three that were pretty stuck out, which was give, guide, and grow. So we came up with this slogan, like we give our all, we guide each other, and then we grow together. It's very much like a scalable mentality. And if we do that, we're just going to keep growing. And so like we say that first thing every meeting, Wow, it's really taken off. People love it, like the give, guide, grow. So one of the things we want to do is getting back to the building is we're going to create a foundation called the Give, Guide, Grow Foundation, which is going to be focused on youth and STEM development for like future leaders in like the STEM world. And STEM is, can you clarify Sorry, what that is? Science, technology, engineering, and math. So like the technical professions. A lot of our clients tell us that when engineers come out of school today, they just can't communicate. They're on screens a lot more these days, kids. They're not as active as they yeah. used to be. So our goal with the foundation will be to help kids socially, mentally, physically. And that's going to be something else that we want to run out of the building. So we got big plans, but I'm just generally excited to get like a headquarters, and which is funny because in the beginning yeah. I was like, I don't want to go to an office. And now I tell my wife, I really want to go to an office. I want to go somewhere every day. Well, I think there's this interesting, and part of the reason I want to talk to you is I think you're really onto something. There is this journey in our space where location independent it's because we really value our location and we want to make sure we're getting a high ROI from it. And going to a nine to five corporation, like you said, like I can make more money if I get out of here, I can talk to more interesting people. So why am I sitting here? It's literally holding me back. And now you're trying to, it seems like you've come full circle and come into a space that does the opposite. It actually 
improves people's lives, makes them more productive. And I think that's the dream that you want to be able to choose in the end. Yeah. I've always said I wanted to have that freedom. And freedom isn't just financial freedom. It's really freedom with your time. You could do whatever you want to do every day with whoever you want to do it to. That's always been my career goal. I do pretty much whatever I want every day with whoever I want to do it with. <laughs> like, that's pretty much what I do. I'm going to put that on my LinkedIn profile. But I know you got to run uh, to go collect some more money from your big fancy <laughs> clients. I appreciate you carving out some time for us. I love the exercise. I want to underline it. Going to your team and asking them. I was doing the same thing this morning because at a certain point, you can't just be the dictator all the time. I was asking them, hey, what? how would you describe our mission to me? Like, what do you think our mission is? And Everyone used the same word. I was so happy. They said, we connect founders. We connect, found, connect, connect, connect. And uh, you did something similar. And I think that's a really cool exercise. Final piece. I know a lot of people want to end up into a, the position that you're in, Anthony, in terms of opportunities, in terms of scale, in terms of team. What sort of advice do you give to people? I know you foreshadowed a little earlier, but could you give people that are looking to make that leap and just go for it? What's your advice to them? So I would say that you have to be very disciplined and have a good structure to your days and weeks. And I know that sounds a little bit robotic, but I think to be successful, it's something that you need to do. We didn't get to get into this today. It could be another podcast, but I'm reading a great book called The Score Takes Care of Itself, which is Chronicles Bill Walsh, like the great NFL coach who basically took the 49ers from two wins to a Super Bowl in 24 months. And everyone's like, how the hell did you do that? And he was like, I never once thought about winning the Super Bowl. He's like, what I did was I just looked at great teams and I figured out what they did. And I made sure that everyone in our organization, from our quarterback to the secretary who answers the phone calls in the office, we did those every single day. And when we do that, the score just takes care of itself. And we ended up winning a Super Bowl. So my message is simple. Have a good routine, have a good structure, find good people and build those habits every single day. And you're just going to be successful. You just have to plug away at it and do it long enough and find a way to keep it going. Love it. Anthony Fasano, thank you for joining us on the Tropical MBA podcast. You bet, Dan. Thanks for having me. All right. Good luck on your sales call. You don't need good luck. I want to give a big shout out to Anthony for coming by the Tropical MBA podcast. I love how he underlines having a routine, finding good people, and building good habits every single day. I love these simple things that are just super, super hard. You know, one of the things I shared this week at DCBKK was, you know what's simple but hard is just having the right people in the right chairs in your business. It's one of the things I was reflecting on at DCBKK this week, just how critical team composition is. And if your business is changing and growing, often you have to change your team and grow your team. And that's a simple concept, but it's not easy. Speaking of routines, we'll have a lot of news. I'm assuming, I'm hoping, if you join us next Thursday morning. We'll see you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.